Hi, welcome to the podcast. Uh, it's just me this week. There's a few things I want to touch on. Well, three things I want to cover off. So first of all, uh, I'm going to talk a bit about a report that I've written on behalf of the Lancat looking at the use of housing wealth in later life. I mean, primarily at equity release, but also looking a bit broader than that. I'm going to look at the pensions consumer journey. We had a paper from the FCA TPR on that. I've got a few thoughts on that. And also, I'm just going to touch briefly on the Department of Work and Pensions call for evidence on helping savers understand their retirement choices. So that's just come out as well. So let's start with the equity release stuff. So let's talk about me. Uh, let's talk, I'm going to talk a bit about this report that I've written, which you know I found absolutely fascinating. So I don't have a lot of experience in the equity release sector. So apologies to anyone who thinks I've got stuff wrong or missed important points or whatever. I did spend a couple of months looking at a lot of ONS data. We commissioned some consumer research. I talked to a lot of participants in the sector, treasury, FCA, trade bodies, consumer advocates, tech companies, actuaries, financial advisors. We did a fairly structured bit of research with financial advisors. So it was a a reasonably comprehensive attempt to come up with an overview of where the market's at at the moment. It was sponsored by Responsible Life and Royal London. So thank you to them. They paid us to write it, but for the avoidance of doubt, they had no influence over the content of the report, which was all us. And I'm just going to spend a couple of minutes talking about what I found, because I, I genuinely found the whole process absolutely fascinating. Not least because the sector has still a pretty poor reputation. One of the things we did was commission some YouGov research, looking at some specific questions around people's attitudes to inheritances. But within that some free text boxes for people to just kind of answer some questions or give us their thoughts on stuff. They were pretty rude, right? So, and wherever I've turned, overwhelming revelation is that people still do not look upon equity release positively. Though, you know, the people who've used it are actually pretty happy with what they've done. And, you know, it's also really important to acknowledge there's a reason for that, because certainly through the 90s and the 2000s, the sector had a pretty miserable track record of selling poorly designed and in some cases simply rip-off products to, to vulnerable customers. I also think it's fair to say I don't think the sector's perfect now. I mean, arguably none is. Just today, we had a bit of a, a spat on Twitter. Uh, a spat's the right word. There was um, a, bit of, bit, a little bit of a conflagration around the way Pension B communicates with its customers around transfers and whether it's perhaps not entirely serving them well and the information it provides them and the opportunities it gives them to waive their rights on guaranteed aspects of their pensions before they transfer them to, to Pension B. And, you know, that didn't look great. So I guess my point is, you know, there are imperfections across the industry everywhere we look. An equity release is still no, certainly no different. So I think, you know, we, we have to cut everybody a bit of slack But within that, a couple of things that stood out for me on the equity release area where I think there's still room for further improvement. I was just horrified to find that guilt-based redemption penalties are a thing. So if someone wants to repay an equity release loan early, the, the redemption penalty, if there is any at all, is calculated based for certain providers with certain products. So this is not universal by any means. So I think it's fairly isolated, but it's still a thing. 
The redemption penalty is calculated by reference to prevailing guilt yields, and depending on whether they've gone up or down determines whether that customer has to pay a redemption penalty or not. And that does not look to me like treating customers fairly because it means that the the calculation basis is opaque and unpredictable for the customer. And, you know, I just don't see how that's good. And I think under forthcoming consumer duty, it's highly questionable whether that sort of thing should be tolerated. So that's the thing. I also came across instances where, you know, someone borrows some money on equity release arrangement, and then when they go back for further advance, they find the loan criteria have changed. So now they can't get the further advance, and they've got to remortgage instead, and that also doesn't look great to me. So you've got to think about how you treat customers in the long term. Uh, No negative equity guarantees are definitely a good thing, but I'd question whether it makes sense for all arrangements. Like if you only take a 10% loan, do you really need to pay for a no negative equity guarantee? I mean, I haven't drilled into the pricing of them, so maybe on a 10% loan, the pricing's irrelevant anyway. But, you know, so I think if the sector wants to move on from where it's at, it has to be honest about its own shortcomings, particularly because it's done things so badly in the past. Where we are today, is it turns over around £45 billion a year and some sort of fifty to 100,000 customers a year, that kind of territory. So that's the kind of scale of the market. And so then I started sort of looking at the retirement income market because we are, by definition, talking about people typically in their 70s and 80s. And I tried to quantify the scale of the retirement income shortfall in the UK. So I looked at the Pensions and Lifetime Savings Association target retirement income calculations, which are pretty robust and pretty good. And they offer three levels, sort of minimum, moderate, and comfortable. So looking at the middle one, the moderate income, they suggest that a couple should be looking for £30,600 a year to live on. And for a single person, they might need £20,800 a year to have a moderate lifestyle in retirement. So then I looked at the ONS Pensioners Income Series data and the median incomes for couples is 26,600, so 4,000 pounds a year less than the moderate PLSA number. And for single people, it's only 12,800 pounds a year. That's the median income after taxing, after housing costs income for a single person. And that is well short. That's 8,000 pounds a year short of the PLSA calculation. So if you multiply that up across the 12.5 million retired people in the country, you end up with a £48 billion a year, an annual retirement income shortfall. And that is a lot of cheese, right? So I think whilst there are a lot of retired people who are doing quite well in life, it is clear that if you look across the UK, there is a significant retirement income shortfall problem. And it's going to get worse because the population's aging. By 2050, 25% of the population is going to be over the age of 65. And I've referenced this before on this podcast. Lane Clark Peacock have done a fantastic bit of work looking at the projections of future pension income, which they've labeled the ski slope of doom. And it shows that we're pretty much at the high watermark now, and things are going to get worse from here. So if, if it's a problem now, it's, it, you know, we, we really need to think now about what we're going to do about it. And for now, at least, defined contribution pension pots typically are only a few tens of thousands of pounds in value. And for neither now nor in the immediate future, are they going to be the main source of income for most retirees? For now, we're mostly talking about state pensions and defined benefit pensions. And the other area of financial need I looked at was with inheritances. And I can speak from personal experience here. There are a lot of 20-somethings that are still stuck at home with their parents because they can't afford to move out and get on the housing ladder. And you know the, the key impediment here is the ridiculously high property prices. It's difficult for them to raise a deposit to get started. I mean, you know, for a lot of those people, 
the cost of servicing a mortgage is less than the cost of rent. So if they could get a mortgage and get into a house, they could afford to live there, but they can't get over that hump in the first place. But with the average age of death well up into the 80s, the cascade of wealth down through the generations is currently typically only arriving at people in their 50s and 60s, which is no doubt useful, but perhaps less relevant than it would be for people in their 20s. And the middle-aged people who are inheriting the money from their 80-something parents who are dying all have, not all, but very often have offspring in their 20s who are now struggling to get on the housing ladder. So the question of releasing capital now and passing it on not to the children, but to the grandchildren, I think is also a really interesting question and one that isn't being adequately addressed at the moment. The big overall challenge that came out from the research for me is the need to just kind of normalize the idea of consuming housing wealth in later life and to beat a pathway to its door so it isn't treated as a disreputable afterthought, but as a legitimate and sensible tool that people use to live their lives well, because that's mostly not happening at the moment. And I think the you know, that problem statement around people's retirement incomes and helping their family members, you know, we've got a need on one side and we've got this huge resource on the other side and we're not kind of putting the two together. And I think it's also fair to say that the elements of this equation have only really emerged in the last couple of decades. This is a consequence of people living longer, coupled with the baby boom, so that bulge in the population, and the house price boom that has meant that those older generations are all sitting on substantial amounts of wealth, housing wealth, whilst at the same time their grandchildren specifically now really struggle to get on the housing ladder. So all these things have come together in a way that simply wasn't relevant in the 90s or even the early 2000s. This is a 21st century phenomenon. And then you throw into the mix the declining pension payouts as well. And we have a problem today, and I think it's it's going to get worse. So what also struck me is that this is a collective problem, that there is it's just not possible for the industry to solve this problem on its own. And I you know, tip my hat to the Equity Release Council and the good work that they have done in raising the standards of the industry, introducing safeguards and checks to improve the quality of the products and services delivered to customers. The FCA regulates the sector, and I'll come back to that in a moment. But the Equity Release Council, for all the good work they've been doing over recent years, is just really not making a dent in either the sector growth, which is creeping up at a few percent a year, or in the reputation of the industry, which is still really stuck where it was 20 years ago. And I don't think they can fix this problem on their own. And then what I found interesting looking when we started talking to advisors and to the FCA is that I think the regulation of equity release is a problem because it sits in the mortgage silo. So it's an equity release silo within a mortgage silo. And what happens is wealth management advisors, the guys helping you sort out your defined contribution pension pot and managing an income from your ISAs and so on, they just don't look at equity release. I mean, sorry, for those that do, I apologize because some do but many don't. It's treated as a side of desk activity. Even the ones that do take account of equity release very typically pass it off to Bob down the road because he's the specialist that does equity release. And you can argue there's a good reason for doing that. He is the specialist. He understands the market inside out. It's fine to subcontract that work. But in a lot of cases, that subcontracting process isn't even happening. It's just, well, I just don't do houses, right? And I think that's partly a reputation issue. I found it interesting talking to advisors that some would say, yeah, you know, we recognize that we probably should do more in the space, but we just kind of don't. 
Uh, and I also spoke to advisors who are enthusiastic advocates of equity release and who do actively engage with their customers on it, but then very often they will pass it off to someone else to actually do the execution for them. So my challenge to the FCA on this is, look, you, the FCA, have to drag it into a different place. You have to make advisors accountable for that. So, for example, if you're advising someone on their later life income and you don't advise them on their housing wealth, you should be required to say so. It's like, look, Mr. Customer, you've got this asset with hundreds of thousands of pounds and I'm just ignoring it and constructing your retirement income portfolio. That's, that's just, you know, just a thing I'm going to do because you have to shine a bit of a light on that. I would suggest the Cobb's rules should be amended so that houses and equity release actually become part of wealth planning and aren't simply a subsidiary silo of mortgage regulation. And I would actually look to expand the the training and qualifications around equity release. So I'm not saying every advisor should be forced to study equity release and forced to advise on it because you know everybody's got their own business. But I do think advisors should be more aware of equity release and it's how it can be used. And by the way, there wasn't much consistency there when I spoke to different advisors about what equity release should even be used for and the circumstances under which it's appropriate. So I think there's some guidance that the sector needs to work out for itself there. And then it was interesting when I looked at government policy in this space and I spoke to the Treasury about it. They were very helpful. But the government just doesn't really have a policy here. And I think part of the problem is that it cuts across a number of different government departments. So you've got the Department for Health and Social Security, and obviously Social Security is social services, is social security is a big issue here. And the welfare system and how you deal with later life care and the costs of that is an element of the equation. The DWP has an interest in this, the Treasury definitely has an interest in this, and the Department for Leveling Up and Housing and Communities has an interest in this. Local government has an interest in this because very often they're the ones paying for care. But across those different government departments, there is no clearly articulated policy as to what good looks like. I mean, the Treasury kind of vaguely thinks that it'd be great if we could get older people to downsize and sell those big family homes so that families can trade up and could the old people please move into retirement homes but the problem is there actually aren't enough retirement homes for them to do that and most people don't want to and when you look at downsizing typically the sums released in doing it are not significant not in the way that taking out a hundred grand's worth of equity could be so there's all of that and actually what i was also struck me is i think i think there's a role for maps and arguably for pension wise in all of this and i flagged this in the report when you look at the size of DC pension pots and the need for guidance there and the numbers of people who've got DC pension pots, which are typically only a few tens of thousands of pounds, arguably, if you're starting from scratch, it would make more sense to have an equity release-wise service because many more people have much greater sums of money tied up in their houses than they do in their DC pension pots. Now, we have pension-wise for a good political reason because of pension freedoms in 2015, and, and I get that. But a recommendation I've made in the report is that, you know, surely we should be reversing something that looks like housing wealth into the pension-wise service. And we should be expanding the guidance that MAPS delivers to people around how they can use their housing wealth. So I think the only way you're actually going to shift the dial on this is if all those parties, the industry, the regulators, the government, actually A, acknowledge that there is this problem you know, that we're not using five and a half trillion pounds of housing wealth 
of which around half sits with the over 65s and we're not using it effectively right and then we've got these problems that could be fixed if we could do things better so it'd be great to see everyone get around the table on that it was interesting a couple of the responses i've just seen in the last couple of days to the paper one ex-pensions minister was characteristically negative about it seeing any problems and the poor reputation of the the equity release sector while another ex-pensions minister was very supportive and highlighted the good work they've already done in this area and the close overlap with their own conclusions which was nice Another recommendation I made in the report was that the government should look again at the £175,000 main residence IHT allowance, because to my eyes, just like the death benefits on pensions, that incentivizes perverse suboptimal behaviors and outcomes. Like that IHT allowance actively incentivizes people to maintain a store of wealth in their house just like the pension death benefits for some people actively incentivizes them not to draw on their pension pot. And I don't wish to disappear down the the whole pension tax reform rabbit hole on this podcast. So I'm just going to say that in the report, I called these things out and I I would want to see them put on the table. And I was interested with the IHT suggestion. Some really hated it. And, and, you know, so don't, don't you dare touch our IHT allowances, while, whereas others were, were really quite positive about it, which I thought in itself was interesting. So there we are. That was my equity release report. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Have a read. I want this to stimulate a discussion. So if you've got any thoughts around it, do please talk to me. You can find me on Twitter at PensionsMonkey, but you probably knew that already. Or, or at the Lancat, Tom at LancatFinancial.com. There you go. So I also read in the last few days the joint FCA pensions regulator paper on the pensions consumer journey. And this builds on a consultation document they put out last year. And the highlights of that were that the main decisions for people to consider, and Robert Cochran kind of tucked on, touched on this in last week's podcast, when to save, how much to save, which savings vehicle to use, how and when to seek pension advice, how and when to access their savings. And so they then defined the main stages of the pensions consumer journey. I mean, Rob actually came up with a distilled version of that, but essentially there's a lot of overlap there. So they said they see the main stages of the pension consumer journey as starting a pension, accumulating, approaching retirement, accessing a pension, decumulating. So there we go. The FCA Financial Lives survey in 2020, so a couple of years old now, showed that 38% of those currently contributing to a DC pension do not know how much they or their employer are paying into their pensions. And half currently contributing to a DC pension have not reviewed their pot value in the last 12 months. One third of adults, 31% with a DC pension in accumulation, don't even know who their pension provider is. And this is something I've touched on elsewhere, is that the need to strengthen the relationship between the pension provider and the, the member, the flaw in auto-enrollment is that it's all predicated on that inertia and the relationship between the employee and the employer. And then the employee leaves that employer and guess what? They lose touch with their pension. And yes, the dashboard will help fix that. But we need to strengthen our efforts to build a relationship between the individual saver who was auto-enrolled and the pension provider who's actually looking after their money for them. So, The FCA says it's worried about people selecting non-workplace pensions which don't provide value for money 
and people remaining in unsuitable workplace pensions as a deferred pension when they do leave their employer. They're also a bit worried about this is more of a TPR thing, employer selecting an unsuitable scheme for their employees. So the key outtakes from this consultation is that people have reported back to the FCA that people's retirement savings journey, their pension journey is highly personalized and non-linear with consumer decisions and touch points mainly shaped by people's life events, such as changing jobs or buying a house. So policy solutions to that need to be dynamic and flexible. And that means people do need tailored support right through their working lives. So it's difficult to default around that kind of stuff. So thinking about, you know, if you've got Steve Webb on one side with his defaults and Guy Opperman on the other side with his engagement stuff, you know, I'm not saying we can't use defaults, but I think Guy's arguments around we needing better engagement are actually borne out by this, this research. There were concerns about inequalities in pension outcomes relating to things like gender and religion, um, supporting women getting back into the workplace. That was, that was a particular concern for many. But then many respondents to this joint consultation, particularly the master trusts and large providers, said they want to do more to support consumers. And we'll come back to that in a minute with the DWP consultation that's just come out. But they're concerned about straying into regulated advice or unsolicited marketing activity. And you've got information commissioner issues with that. So trade associations said that government, regulators, government and other interested parties should ensure their efforts are coordinated. They should work towards the same objectives to avoid contradictions or duplication of efforts. So I guess the engagement season work that we've got coming up with the DWP, the PLSA, the ABI, MAPS, Pension Geeks, all working together to foster better engagement and clearer communication is all good news. But respondents all highlighted the the more flexible nature of work and retirement these days with people working longer and more flexibly. So engagement seasons are good, but it also means, and we're back to the treasury again here, that people can be potentially pension saving and then accessing pension savings at the same time or one after the other or one and then the other and then one again, you know, so, so you might drift in and out of employment. And that has implications for tax policy. And I'm thinking here particularly of the money purchase annual allowance, which is a, a nasty piece of work and should be abolished. So I think all this work in this space here by the FCA and the pensions regulator and by the DWP looking at pension engagement illustrates again the reason why the Treasury needs to look again at pension taxation. So another thing that came out in the paper was their concerns around scams and fraud risk. And, you know, they highlight the Scam Smart campaign. Great as far as it goes. Not good enough, in my opinion. You know, they need to do more to make the boundary between regulated and unregulated products and services clearer so that people can, can see that boundary from space and will know without any ambiguity whether the product and service they're accessing is covered by regulatory controls and, crucially, compensation schemes as well. So, you know, back to that again. And I think just hiding behind the Scam Smart campaign isn't good enough. This paper talks about the self-employed and the nudges that are being implemented using the HMRC systems to remind people about pension savings. So when you finish your self-employed tax return and you send in, it's like, hey, Bob, you know, have you thought about putting some money into a pension? And that's all well and good. But again, I think they're missing a trick because the vast majority of self-employed people 
spend some of their working lives in employment. And that means very often they will get auto-enrolled, which means very often they will already have a pension. So we're trying to get self-employed people to think about putting money into a pension and, and accessing pensions when they've already got a pension. So if there was a stronger relationship between that individual and that dormant pension pot, then it would perhaps improve the chances of them reconnecting with their retirement savings and, and choosing to put more money in. So I think that harvesting of email addresses and improving that relationship is, is really critical in solving the self-employed pension saving problem. So the, the paper, the FCA TPR paper, also revisits the advice guidance boundary. That's a bingo. And it's clear that there's still a pretty substantial disconnect between the FCA here and the industry. And we had Sarah Pritchard giving, I think a director, senior senior employee at the FCA, Sarah Pritchard, I can't remember what her job title is. She was giving evidence to the DWP committee. And she was asked about the advice guidance boundary. And she just kind of really was quite dismissive about it, saying it doesn't need shifting. Shifting it would be problematic because it's enshrined in primary legislation, but then also saying we don't have any evidence that it needs moving anyway and, and nothing to see here and please move on. And when you read this paper, this joint paper that they and the pensions regulator have put out, they talk about the perceived inability of providers and schemes to provide enhanced guidance. It's like, you know, this is still on you guys. It feels like there's a bit of victim blaming going on here. So the regulators are saying, look, this is on you. This is your fault. You can't deliver on this. And they talk in the paper at length about the amendments they made to the regulated activities order back in January 2018 and the perimeter guidance that they've published and all this kind of stuff. And it just, it's like one of those caricatures of a 1970s working class Thomas Cook holiday maker sitting there in the Spanish restaurant, shouting at the, 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 the waiter in English, demanding more ketchup and being entirely perplexed as to why this, this waiter doesn't understand him and just shouting ever louder in English, right? So this is kind of communication disconnect going on with the FCA shouting ever louder at the, F at the industry going, look, this is the, the boundary and the industry, on the other hand, saying, yeah, but this doesn't work for us. So there's that. So to summarize, the paper lists a whole load of actions that are already being taken to aid the, the consumer's pension journey, including publicizing the midlife MOT toolkits for use by employers and pension providers, working with MAPS to produce guidance on helping staff return to the workforce and promote life event guides, conducting an inequality review on how well the market works for different groups of savers, setting up stakeholder panels. I think it was a TPR thing covering industry employers and savers, reviewing communications guidance to provide more information on inclusivity and the use of behavioral insights, introducing the consumer duty. Yeah, that's the big dog that's going to just, this was a recurring theme through the paper. And <laughs> there's a slight sense for the FCA, the consumer duty is the universal panacea that will fix all ills coming to a compliance department near you one day soon, probably end of July, I'm told. So that gets a few name checks in the paper. They're going to put out an updated joint regulatory strategy paper in the second half of 2022. And after my griping about on our previous podcast about how the two regulators don't appear to be working together, yeah, kind of uh, more and more evidence that actually they are. So maybe I was a bit premature with that criticism. And they're going to explore, but no more firms concerns on providing support to customers within the current regulatory framework and that's it everything they were doing already and nothing new so a bit of a roundup on the consumer journey on pensions without actually changing anything that wasn't already in train so i want to finish off with the 
DWP's call for evidence on helping savers understand their pension choices. There's a deadline for responses to this of 25th July, which is not so very far away. And they wanted to look at situations in the lead up to people taking their pensions, the point at which they want to access their savings, and after they've started to use their pension savings. And the DWP wants to hear about what pension savers need to help them to make informed choices And they also want to understand from occupational pension schemes what support they currently offer when their members make decisions and what schemes are considering offering their members in the future. So it's a call for evidence from individuals and from occupational pension schemes. I mean, do individuals even reply to these things? It's like, how are they going to get ordinary people to to write into this? Ah, do you know what what should I do this weekend? I know. I'll respond to a DWP call for evidence on accessing pension savings. I thought I thought we were the only people that did that kind of thing, and and you know they're going to use this in both. You know maybe they've got some clever mechanisms for doing that, and the responses to this call for evidence will inform the DWP's policy positions on this. Big flag raised in the paper for for collected defined contribution schemes as part of the solution. The DWP's definitely got the bit between its teeth on that one. It was interesting to see lots of scepticism on Twitter about that. John Ralph, Nathan Long and others. And, you know, I get the reservations. I've been there myself and still to some extent am in that camp, I think. You know, there's a real issue around retirement CDC schemes around transfers out and the disparity potentially of death benefits. And I think it's going to take some clever solutions to reconcile that. But, you know, if I were a betting man, and mostly I'm not, though occasionally I am, if I were going to put money on it, I would say that we're going to see much broader use of collective defined contributions, probably not next year, but if you fast forward a few years. So the DWP, back to the paper, um, it asks about aligning with the FCA's requirements on wake-up packs with regard to content and timing, including, always a pleasure to see this, the one-page statement, and that was, so the pre-retirement one-page statement, that was the direct result of the lobbying work that I and a few others conducted promoting the pension passport. I don't get many wins, so I have to make the most of them when they come along. So you're welcome. They're concerned about schemes concerns. They want to hear about schemes concerns about straying into the advice territory again. Oh, look, it's that advice guidance boundary again. And the DWP wants to hear more about that. And they're also asking, and I'm very pleased to see this, whether Nest should be allowed to to offer drawdown. And I get the fact that that was off the table for Nest when it was first launched and taxpayer funding and competition for the industry and all the rest of it. But look, we've moved on now. If I'm an individual customer in Nest, it seems to me pretty daft that I should be denied the option of taking a drawdown income from my pension scheme that I would have to transfer out. And you can make a case that Nest shouldn't go around hoovering up transfers in just to offer drawdown. Yeah, maybe that's a bit bit harsh and from a competitive point of view, given they're propped up by whatever is like a billion pounds of taxpayers' money now. But, you know, I just come back to what what's fair for the customer. And denying them access to a drawdown arrangement through Nest just looks pretty daft to me. The DWP also asks about investment pathways, and it looks pretty much nailed on that we're going to see those being introduced for occupational DC schemes as well. And look, that's fine as far as it goes. Same response to the FCA. Look, it's fine as far as it goes. But what about guidance on income withdrawal strategies? You know, the investment pathways is only one side of the equation. And however good a job you do with the investment pathways, if you're stripping out 10% a year, the chances are you're going to run out of money pretty fast. So I think 
think there's still more work to be done on that space. I'm going to stop there. I hope you found all of that interesting. As always, if you've got any thoughts or comments or questions, do let me know. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, then do please consider leaving a positive review and maybe even subscribing for future episodes. The sound engineer was Ross Burns. Thank you for listening.